Northern Rivers Food and Southern Cross University present Business Bites. This podcast series discusses, evaluates and explores all the factors that contribute to making a successful business. I'm Angela Caterns, host of Business Bites, and in each episode we hear wisdom and insights from forward-thinking academics and leading industry experts about what really helps a business stay relevant and thrive. Usually each of our episodes focuses on a single issue which we explore with a number of guests. Our topics are tangible, contextual, real-time concerns for regional businesses. Everything from business finance to collaboration to building culture. But in this episode we're doing something a little different. We're gazing into the crystal ball of the future, contemplating what the business landscape could look like in 20 years' time. Our guide to the future is the once-in-a-decade report released this year by the CSIRO. Called Our Future World, the weighty tome identifies seven global megatrends that hold the key to the challenges and opportunities ahead and predict their likely impact on Australia's people, businesses and governments. To be clear, the emerging megatrends should not be seen as impending doom. For each risk, there's opportunities for business leaders who have a long-term vision. There's a perfect quote in the introduction to Our Future World from John Nesbitt, who was regarded as the founder of the mega-trend concept. Trends, like horses, are easier to ride in the direction they're going. So let's see what future direction could be and contemplate what it might mean for regional businesses. Joining us today are three fellow time travellers, Professor Mary Spongberg, Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Southern Cross University. Welcome. Thanks, Angela. Jane Laverty, Regional Director of Business New South Wales. Welcome, Jane. Thank you, Angela. And Pam Brook, author, Regen Farmer and food manufacturer. Welcome, Pam. Thanks, Angela. Lovely to have you all three in our studio. So to set the scene, let's just define what a megatrend is. The CSIRO talks about them as trajectories of change likely to have a substantial and transformative impact. And in this report, they've identified seven global megatrends likely to impact on Australia over the next 20 years. And the seven megatrends are adapting to climate change, leaner, cleaner and greener, the escalating health imperative, geopolitical shifts, diving into digital, increasingly autonomous and unlocking the human dimension. And so let's talk about adapting to climate change first. Pam, you're a farmer. You and Martin and your family have spent years transforming your property into a viable macadamia and native food farm and built the hugely successful Brook Farm brand along the way. The climate change megatrend must be one that rings alarm bells for you. Is that right? Oh, definitely. And we've seen changes coming over the past years. I mean, the whole seasons have altered. We used to harvest our macadamias in about uh, March, April. Now we're starting to harvest in February. This year, uh, well, we started harvesting in February, then we stopped because you couldn't drive a tractor on any land or anything like that. And the nuts, which have never been able to sit on the ground for more than two weeks, have now been sitting there for up to six months and we're harvesting them now. Who knows what the quality will bring? 
So I think one of the things that farmers need to really do is you can't fight climate change. We have a responsibility to, A, to be responsible for future generations in the way we conduct ourselves in terms of our carbon emissions and those things. But we also have to learn to adapt to climate change and become more resilient. And in the past, everyone used to say, well, we'll spray this or we'll spray that, we'll do this and we'll do that. You can't do that anymore. You've got to understand the land and work with the land. You can't fight with nature. That's why regenerative farming is a really exciting, not just a trend, but a reality these days. And I think it's a really important time now for farmers to really learn again, if they don't know about regenerative farming, to learn about it, to learn how to work with it. You've got cattle farmers who are doing cell grazing. You've got macadamia farmers that are growing insectaries on their land because the, ba- the bugs are disappearing. What did you say they're growing in? It's called insectaries. So you Insectuary. Plan- it's an, well, it's an exotic name, but what it means is you plant a whole lot of flowering plants, plants that attract bugs, and the idea is the more the merrier. And so you might have weeds in your insectary, you might have a whole lot of different flowering plants, but you want plants that flower for the entire year round. And that's that way you have more bugs. And in the past when we used to spray regularly what would happen is the sprays would kill off the bugs and then you don't have that diversity. And so either of you women like to jump in there? So Southern Cross University is the first Australian university to teach regenerative agriculture and and whilst that's kind of being positioned as a new trend and obviously there are new ideas coming out of that course, a lot of it is, is reverting back to... Um, methods that we've we've used in the past and understanding how uh, the land worked, you know, before um, you know white settlement and 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 adopting indigenous knowledges around around food production and and, and things like that. And I think that's really exciting as well. Yeah, so important. And I think that farmers have sometimes lost trust in themselves and their understanding. Uh, and they rely in the past sometimes there was an over reliance on chemical companies or major major corporations to come up with solutions. Mm. But the farmer learning and studying their own land and learning to work with the seasons and their particular mm. locale mm. is a greater knowledge yeah. which comes back to indigenous knowledge. They knew their land and they understood their yeah. land. Mm. And we've learned I think during the floods how important some of that knowledge, local knowledge of farmers has been and, and how we, we need to restore those networks of of understanding and and I think restore faith in um, that knowledge as well. And I think the network is really important there because farmers talk to each other and they trust each other and farmers learn a huge amount from fellow farmers. So building that collaboration of farmers across networks is a really good way of managing change because one might experiment more than another Mm. and helps lead the pack. Jane, how will businesses cope? How will businesses uh, cope with the inevitability that they have to uh, adapt to climate change and possibly pass on... Mm. 
cost to the consumers. Well, just picking up on um, Pam's point around farmers, whenever I think about change and adapting to change, I always think of farmers because they're so innovative. They've continually had to change and often not have access to finance to um, invest in some of that. So many of them put together um, you know, machinery that you couldn't replicate because you know they just are able to, to make it work. Um, certainly the challenges for farmers and for all businesses in adapting to change is there and they've probably never felt it as much as they had over the last probably five years or so. So um, the good side of that is that they are adapting quickly and, and using that innovation in their businesses. And for some of them, when they're faced with that challenge, it's that very challenge that helps them to springboard into something new, new products, new opportunities, new markets, and, um, and let go of some of the old. So uh, it's inspiring to see that. And certainly in our region, when um, I think we're first adopters in a, in a lot of this. And is that right? Yes. Mm. And, and when we've been reviewing our Northern Rivers brand and what we stand for, what are the values of this region, um, certainly the way we're uh, dealing with change and, that, and, and climate change and, and looking forward has been a big part of um, the values of this region and what we've built the Northern Rivers brand on. And we can only and should only keep strengthening that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's genuine opportunity there because, because we are early adopters. And I know at the university, one of the things that we're really interested in is in, is in the production of functional food. And we've had great responses from, um, you know, industry around that you know around black you know black rice projects or hemp seed projects and and i think that the functional food production market's only going to increase and that we're in a very strong position to be you know leaders in that field well the second um global mega trend is leaner cleaner and greener and that's pretty much right up our alley isn't it well, I don't think, um, you know, there's probably also no higher level of consciousness um, around sustainability or our environmental impact than you'll find in the Northern Rivers. We've seen businesses here be um, kind of ahead of the curve, I'd like to say. Um, but that's because they're courageous. Um, I work with a lot of business leaders who inspire me every day, um, but they also see the advantages in creating this diversification in their business as well and, and a differentiator um, by being well known by their, their customers as um, working in a cleaner um, and greener environment as well. And I mentioned um, that being a value of our brand, well, a lot of our businesses are uh, connecting themselves to that as well mm. because it is setting them ahead of many others. And we uh, recently spoke about uh, empl- uh, employees and uh, and recruitment and that being a value um, that's very important to prospective, uh, prospective staff as well. And our students too. Mm. Is that right? Mm. Now, attracting staff, um, it's, you know, workforce development of old um, is of old and today any new recruits um, are looking for what is the purpose behind the business, what do they stand for. It's not just what you make or what you do, it's the philosophy within the business that they're connected to and they won't want to work for an employer of choice. Mm-hmm. And I think that when businesses start these days... Many years ago when businesses started, you had an idea and you went straight in, you know, all guns blazing. Now there's a real need for businesses, if they're going to be leaner, greener and and more resilient, is they really have to understand their business basics. They really, they can't ignore the business fundamentals. They need to know their cash flows. They need to know their profits. They need to know every in and out of their business. But they also need to share that with their employees so that the employees help 
support and take on that responsibility with the with the employer and then you collectively build a business that is going to be more innovative and and um, more resilient and and uh, and be lean and green yeah. mm. mm-hmm. and I, I, oh, sorry I think that the you know the the waste and recycling has often been seen as the, the just the, the the kind of disciplines of engineering and and um, and science have been interested in it. But but what you're pointing to, and I think what's really important, is that circular economy piece. That you can't get people to to do things that are sustainable unless it's going to be good for their business. And mm. and at, at, at the university, we're very committed to that circular economy. Um, and we have a, a we've just established a, a new um, kind of lab that's de- devoted to the regional circular economy and regional businesses got behind us in a very big way to pull that together. So I think there's there's great um, hope when those things come together. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Jane, I was wondering if you could give us some examples or tell us what you've seen emerge and change over the years, um, especially with regard to businesses and councils. Uh, councils in the Northern Rivers have actually been really good in this space and, and often leading leading the way. Um, all of them are embracing that circular economy um, work that Mary was just speaking about and, and some of them have been ahead of many councils across the state um, here in the Northern Rivers, which has been great. They've been the first to take solar on and onto their buildings. Um, so when they set that pace for business and industry and when business and industry need that support, I think uh, it's great that councils are, are leading the way. For business and industry, um, they are really immersing themselves now in this circular economy space because it, they know that this is also how they can save money in their business as well and, and again, add to their, the way they're differentiating themselves in the market, um, whether that be for customers or for attracting staff. And um, I, I think they're also looking at it in terms of even right back to their packaging. So when they're mm. developing their products, how can we develop this product and take it to market um, you know, with a less impact on our environment. So, again, that innovation is core to yes. um, taking that approach as well. Absolutely. Um, Pam, you mentioned your insectuary on your uh, property earlier on. Um, can we talk a little bit about future demands for food and sources of various, uh, you know, uh, protein and, and is there a huge opportunity for businesses in this region, given our generally progressive nature? Are we going to see insect farmers, for instance, in the Lismore area? Well, who knows? Um, we, I think we started with one of the world's first uh, cockroach farms in Australia mm-hmm. uh, in um, <laughs> about years ago. <laughs> I it think makes it me was... feel really uncomfortable, actually. Oh, I think <laughs> they were farming them for insects. I'm not sure, but there was... Um, but who knows? Uh, the innov- there's innovation and then there's essentially what's clean and green as well. We can't forget that in all of that we need real food and we need real food, fresh food, for all the really good things that that does. The alternative proteins are different grains. Uh, um, there's you know all sorts of lab cell meats and things. I was listening to a program, they think, maybe not on shelf till 2050 in a, a commercially viable way. But I think uh, growing uh, more plant foods, uh, more plant proteins and those sort of things are really going to be leading the way. But I also think that well-grown food is going to be really important and the lack of contamination. So it's 
contamination and uh, heavy metal contaminants or pollution is a real issue in many areas of the world in the agricultural industry. And so there's a real opportunity for our region to be a real leader in that clean and green. We're going to have to learn to manage waste more. And there's a huge waste in the system where uh, take the banana, you know, it's only perfect when it's that bright yellow colour, when it's green it's no good, when it's past that green, it's the yellow and it's going black, it's no good. But you've got a banana in all those stages of life and we need to be, with all foods, we need to be managing the waste along the way so that we don't accept that we just throw out two-thirds of what we grow uh, and only sell a third. Yeah, and I think that gets to one of the other mega trends about you know the human element about thinking about how we consume and what we consume and what we accept is acceptable for consumption. Yes, uh, and I think that's something that you know the humanities and social sciences can really add to and 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 in that trend to, to get to understand why people don't want to buy brown bananas or only want to yeah. buy yellow bananas or how we get them to to think differently about that. Yes, save that. Save that thought there, Mary. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that mega trend <laughs> in There is such an interactivity, I'm a girl, isn't there? I'm a girly swat. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's so much to talk about in that consumer space. Well, there is. But so l- let's just get... I just wanted to ask you about the fact that we're now all on the road towards net zero. Um, it's going to build momentum. What can we expect to see business and the industry doing to, re- to reduce carbon emissions in the region? Jane. I think many of them are already doing that um, across, you know, they're making choices, informed choices and informed decisions, and that's critical to that. Um, I, we're seeing a real pickup in the electronic vehicles, certainly, um, and there will be that, that phasing out, and there's a commitment by car companies to be phasing that out over the next 10 to 20 years, so I think that's great. And, and businesses are embracing that as well, and the more we can support that industry, I think... Um, the more, particularly living in a regional area where we have the more charging stations and things of that nature, that will that will certainly um, support that decision making. Um, a lot of businesses, you know, having uh, gone through a major event as we've had in this region earlier this, this year, I think they're you know, certainly looking inside of their businesses and how they can be making those better decisions and um, lowering greenhouse gas emissions, you know, having a real part to play, having an important part to play in change. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, Shall we move on to our third megatrend, the escalating health imperative? And Mary, you lead Southern Cross University's research efforts, uh, much of which delve into health and healthcare. What do you make of this identified trend towards escalating health imperative? Well, I think COVID's put um, health front and centre of everybody's agenda. I think that, um, and, and, you know, at SCU, health is our biggest faculty. We've got most students in it. But unlike a lot of universities, we don't have a medical faculty. And I think that is actually something that's that's future facing as well because I don't know that the, the future of medicine is necessarily just about what doctors do anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that allied health professionals are, are going to be really critically important to the future of health in Australia. Complementary medicine, which is also another area that we specialise in, has come again to the fore, I think, through COVID. People um, using uh, different complementary medicines to, to, to protect themselves from COVID and to, to, to build themselves back if they've had COVID. Um, so I think that the, the future of medicine is, is uh, the future of health is, is, is across all those fields, but also 
the intersection of other disciplines like engineering and like um, and, and science. And again, I think COVID's really put that back in, in, into the into our um, our vision that we we're not going to have you know single answers to any sort of health problem. They're going to be um, faced with you know multidisciplinary responses. Mm. Mm. And would you say SCU is leading the way here in, in research in this area? Uh, certainly in complementary medicine. Uh, we have very strong allied health research um, and uh, also digital health, which I'm sure you're going to ask me about in a second. <laughs> <laughs> go on. You just go on. Don't you wait for me to ask. <laughs> go on. Well, I think um, in terms of... Uh, yeah. No, I'll, I'll, I think I think that there are diff different um, uh, different approaches to health um, that beyond uh, you know I, I think the telehealth revolution that occurred as a result of the um, of the COVID epidemic you know weeks before COVID hit we were you know being told that telehealth's not really going to work and you know um, it's 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 not going to be good for patients and it's never going to get the results we want. And now telehealth is, is something that we all accept. It's, you know, got its own protocols. People are using it really regularly and, and it's saved a lot of people, I think, during COVID. And that's certainly an area that we've been specialising in, both within allied health and within the complementary medicine space. Mm -hmm. mm. Saves on petrol too, that's for sure. <laughs> that's true. And, I mean, that gets to the sustainability piece mm. as well. I think that COVID's... With universities, I was thinking as you answer that question, with universities... Um, you know, we really, COVID really made us think about, you know, talking the talk about travel, mm. about uh, the amount of time we spend, um, you know, go, going to places, you know, um, and, and, and making it, making sure that we commit to those sustainable development goals because, um, oh, um, uh, because, uh, you know, universities, um, you know, we, we all are very committed to sustainability but as institutions I think we have got a way to go. And we can't really have that health discussion without talking about well-being. I, I, I put the two together yes. now, health and well-being and, and certainly um, you know, we're seeing that as an impact of um, the weather event that a mm. lot of – but that's just coming after bushfires and other weather events, yes. floods and a global drought. pandemic oh. and drought. That's right. Yeah. Um, our, our fatigue is there our and that's fatigue. really impacting on well-being of, of the yes. human spirit. So I'm, I'm a big believer in green prescriptions yes. as well, not just medicine. I think that's where the university has a real strength too. Absolutely. What's a green I prescription? Where you can connect with nature, connect with self and connect with others mm -hmm, rather yes. than traditional medicines being the first um, point of call, being able to connect back out with nature. And this is a great region to do that, so we really promote it. Yeah. Um, but that can really help your health and well-being. Well, and mental health too. And, of Absolutely. course, the prediction is that, that will uh, the burden of mental health mm. issues is only set to get... To bigger, um, and it will affect business owners and operators and their staff. How can they get ahead uh, of this trend? Do you think? Oh, I think that um, we have to be really aware. There's two conflicting things with health: is that we're becoming, in some ways, much more sedentary than we were years before. Yet we're more focused on health than we've ever been at any other time. So you know, when you need a prescription to go for a walk in the in the forest. That's, you know, we have to get back to that balance if, with work-life balance. Uh, we need to work efficiently and effectively, but find that balance in the number of hours that we do and also to enjoy work as much as we enjoy the other side of things. Uh, I think that's a real 
conflict for people. They often, you know, compartmentalise their lives. And we really need to think more about um, the foods we eat coming back to nature, not just what's in a packet, what's good for me, what's the latest trend. We have to also somehow just come back and centre on what's good for us as and good for the planet as well. And mm. there's that balance between those two, between high-tech solutions and simple solutions. Uh, and I think... For business, making work rewarding and satisfying um, and being prepared for the changes that the next generation brings with us. They're not going to stay working with you for a long, long time. They will move around. And instead of getting frustrated by that, perhaps we should understand that when people move around, we have to make the most of them for the time we have them rather than pulling our hair out and saying, they never stay, they never stay. You know, I think that's an important thing, learning to work with the next generations in your business and adapt to that uh, doesn't mean that it's a bad business necessarily if they do move on. Do we? What do we think of the, the working week? Do we think that's going to remain as it is or do we think we, there's going to be a reduction to a four-day working week? I think there could be a four-day week working week. I'd suggest some people are already working a four-day working week. If, um, if I listen to the business leaders who call me and say, I don't understand it, Jane. Um, they're telling me they can't afford housing, but they want to do less hours. And I said, yes, um, they do. They want to have a life, life balance that us Gen Xs aren't getting. Um, but I, I think we definitely will see that. But at the moment, we've got a, a staffing crisis yeah. and um, we won't have our businesses here if we can't support them with staff and uh, some of that skills and, and some of it isn't. We just did a workforce um, survey and businesses told us that 50% of the jobs they're trying to fill are entry level. So that's mm. with less skills or like very low mm. skills required. So that's a real challenge for our businesses. And again, m some of them are having to close three out of seven days a week at least in the hospitality sector, just so they can look after the staff they do have and have them on the days that are busiest but they still have the same cost of business, so they're still paying for the power to run their um, fridges and mm. their and their leases. So um, that's concerning, but I, I do think a four-day week is, um, is on trend. Mm. And that's going to be a real driver of technology in the future, isn't it? Because if you want a four-day week, you want to be able to do the same amount in that shorter period of time. And technology is what has enabled us to even be thinking about that. What we want, though, also is technology to be able to help the farmer work the four-day week because yeah. they're usually the seven-day week, aren't they? Yeah. And other parts of business that uh, traditionally are very hands-on, how do we get technology to help uh, the whole population move more towards that and, and a rewarding wage for a four-day week? That's going to be the big challenge. So it's not just the top end of town that gets the four-day yeah. week. Agreed. There is a prediction uh, for people to sleep more but less well. Uh, it seems a very tangible issue that businesses might be able to help alleviate. Any quirky ideas on what they could do? I think technology, again, has something to play, a part to play in this. Um, so many of us are on our digital devices as we're about to head off to sleep and so it's probably rewiring some of our behaviours if we're wanting better sleep mm. uh, and that's a certainly big a huge part of well-being if we're getting enough hours sleep but um, if we're doing longer days so we can have the one day off it's just how do we get that overall balance but um, you know I think it's critical yeah but what's your, what's the solution Jane uh, 
less technology um, as you're heading towards um, yeah. bedtime. bedtime. No, 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 no <laughs> tech in the bedroom. It's, yeah, it's kind of yeah. it's a simple one really, but it's so hard it when is. you're heading off to sleep and you're doing the mental list and you're thinking, oh, I'll just do that last email so I'm ahead for the next morning. Mm. So it's that um, challenge around your own health and well-being and, and overall productivity. But everyone tells you if you have a holiday or have a break, you'll actually have a more productive day or you'll be more productive when you come back. So we just need to apply what we probably already know. Yeah, true. Good point. And and I think the things that we think of as health is like you've got to get out and go for a walk. You've got to get a certain amount of exercise. I think that in the future we're going to say if you don't have this many tech-free hours a week, it's not good for your health. That's not something that's in our in our mind at the moment, but I think in, in years to come, it'll be tech-free time. Absolutely. Mm. So let's move on to our fourth glo- global megatrend, which is geopolitical shifts. And Jane, the adage that Australia is at the arse end of the world doesn't hold true anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the, geo- the geopolitical megatrend recognises that developments like the crisis in the Ukraine and tensions in the Asia-Pacific will have lasting impacts. How do we see this playing out for uh, for us here in the Northern Rivers? Yeah, well, we, I guess we just can't escape the fact that um, what is happening globally is impacting us locally um, and that, you know... Action that might be happening halfway around the world is is definitely disrupting us, and we've in what ways? Um, so some of the immediate impacts that we've seen in the last few years has been um, in supply chains um, and our businesses being able to access um, whether it's just the smallest of widgets that makes their full product complete, not being able to get that to the market because they've been able to, not able to get that widget, um, or you know whole products um, sitting on containers. Um, on docks in, and, and not getting here to um, to Australia, um, obviously um, with the I mean and, and some things are are locally um, generated as well. But when you look at the Ukraine, we know that that's had an impact on our, our fuel fuel prices, and then the cost to business again has um, we've really seen that go up as well. So the distribution of goods, so businesses are carrying that cost at the moment. They're not in a position to be able to. Um, put that across to their their customers. Um, that's when we know things are turning around, when as a business you are able to um, pass that cost on, but they're certainly telling me that they're not able to do that at this stage. Um, and, and that can be quite crippling. And in certain sectors, say just in the housing sector, one that's really important to us right now when we're looking to rebuild, um, a lot of our construction companies are not signing up to the number of contracts they once did. So if they once maybe took on 150 homes, they're now only taking on 50 because they're waiting for those supplies. And in the moment you sign a contract to build a home, the cost of actually building it can go up 40% and that's what they've experienced. So mm. certainly is having an impact locally. Mm. And so uh, the changing trade dynamics are also having an impact locally, aren't they, on Australian producers, for example, the Chinese trade tariffs. What do you reckon it, it um, means, Pam, for local producers with an export focus? Well, I think you've got... With the geopolitical thing, you've also got to bring climate change into that as well because um, you're going to have a whole lot of weather events as well that uh, that disrupt, geop- you know, that have a geopolitical influence. But for export and for import, it's really challenging to... You have to spread your risk, I think, is one of the key things, is is spreading your risk around that if you put all your eggs... If everyone had put all their eggs in the China basket... 
and suddenly they're hit with massive tariffs, you know, there you go. You have to, in export, I think we have to have a spread. And same with supply chains, I think we have to have a spread as well because that's affecting businesses usually in the food industry. If we have a drought in Australia and let's say the sunflower crop fails, we're relying on sunflowers from coming from overseas, sunflower kernels, those sort of things. Sunflower oil has suddenly become a rare commodity because of the war in Ukraine. Um, and all these things can compound together, but it's things people wouldn't normally relate to each other. So uh, I think spreading risk in supply chains and spreading risk in export is really important, just as it is domestically. If you only sell to the major supermarkets, you, you, you know, you're on thin ice, my fine feathered friend. You need to have some balance of risk. Mm-hmm. I heard um, Pam present on diversification about 10 years ago and every conversation I have with a business that's concerned about this, I give them Pam's story around having 10 um, distributed customers at any one time and I think it's some of the best advice. Um, it's really cl- critical and, and this gives another good example of that. Yeah. Can you explain, explain what Jane's saying there? So um, we always like to not have one customer that's ideally more than 10% of the business uh-huh. because if, and especially if a customer is getting up to 30 or 40% of the business, that's a massive risk to your bottom line if something falls over with them. So for us, it's, we always analyse the customer base. It's not always possible to do that because one customer can just grow very rapidly. But if one grows very rapidly... You have to really look after them, but then you also in the background have to be pedalling really fast to try and build up your other customer base so that you're, over time you're trying to balance that risk really well. Mm-hmm. And that would be the same supply chain. You never just have one supplier. We always have a backup of at least two others. That's really important. It's so important. We found that even through um, weather events in our country. I had a... a a lady that was a dressmaker and she just had one provider of zips and so that just threw her whole business out and if you get set back six months when you've lost a supplier that can really have a huge impact financially on your business and sometimes not something you can recover from so having your backup suppliers always knowing where else you can go uh, and that's really important from ensuring that you're, you're getting value for money as well um, it takes a little mm. bit of extra research and more relationship development, but it's really critical to ensuring you've got a sustainable business. Mm, very wise words. So let's move on to uh, numbers five and six, diving into digital and increasingly autonomous. And Mary, there's another great quote in the CSIO report. This is from uh, Dan Schulman, who's the CEO of PayPal. And he commented that we went from being the Flintstones to the Jetsons in nine months. <laughs> It just about sums up these two trends. The university must be licking its lips at, at these trends, is it? Well, I think uh, certainly in the digital space, um, as I said, digital health has really taken off and it's an area, a very strong area of research for us and I think that it's been in- incredibly important for the region um, that, that we have um, telehealth and, and, and digital health. And the same with education. I mean, COVID really... Um, made us rethink how we how we can teach and how we should teach and and um, the the opportunities provided by um, a, a blended learning environment um, caused by you know um, in, in the digital space um, and you know I, I've, I've I've seen you know 
people who had been teaching and would refuse to say, that I can't possibly teach online, you can't teach media arts and production online. You know, within two weeks, suddenly, <laughs> you know, embracing, <laughs> um, you know, and thinking. And Ooh. so I, I think that, again, um, for, for reasons of climate change, for sustainability, but also, um, you know, equity of education, Absolutely. equity of a- access, it, that's been a really sh- major shift in the Australian university sector. I don't know that we've got it entirely right. I think we can massively improve in that space, not just SEU, but the whole sector. But I think it is, is the, the way of the future and it's, it's great for accessibility and equity. Mm-hmm. The pandemic rapidly fueled the growth in e-commerce, didn't it? And, and many regional businesses, as we've heard in this series, had to jump and adapt really quickly. How are they going? What are the opportunities they could embrace in coming years, Jane? Um, now they get to make money while they sleep, if they do it really well, <laughs> which, is, which is fantastic. Um, and, and, and it has been a bit of a learning curve because it was, not only, it was only really a few years ago that we didn't have the best of internet connectivity even in our region. So, you know, we've, we have come a long way, um, but the more uh, capacity that there is, then and if we increase that with our capability as business leaders as well, then the opportunities really need no, no bounds. Um, I think um, on my radar at the moment is sort of cyber security that connects with that. And um, we know that small businesses um, are really challenged. Um, the cyber criminals are really savvy and they're certainly taking on the smaller businesses who have less resources, time and budget to protect themselves as against the bigger corporations that do. So this is something that goes hand in hand when you go digital. Um, you need to be really aware of the risks as well. So it's we're, we're encouraging businesses to make sure that they're educating themselves in this space. Um, The exciting thing is when we're having challenges around staffing, we're seeing the quick adaption of um, artificial intelligence and um, other methods of um, being able to fill some of the gaps from a staffing perspective with technology. So QR codes now that everyone can use so well, um, they've become a godsend to some of our hospitality sector who then have them on the tables and you just QR code in, put your order in, even pay. Um, and then the food comes out to you. So, there's, but there's the other side of that where we then have to manage the less human contact and the customer service piece, and um, that's something that I, I think a lot of businesses are tuning back into as well when they have bricks and mortar they're differentiating themselves by actually really upping the customer service levels. So it all balances out, but um, certainly as a trend, uh, it's one that we're all, all businesses are adapting to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important with digital transformation, the, it, particularly in business communicating with the customer. It has to be really... You have to somehow make it personal, timely and responsive. So first of all, people got carried away with the digital thing, but then they realised they had to really give good service. And people have become a little more impatient sometimes with digital because things happen so fast, so they want it fast. But then you've actually got to deliver by road or wherever to the customer. So you have to manage the customer's expectation and people still need to be connected to the business. You still have to ha- establish that connection, that um, that little thing that will make them shop at your with mm. you rather than with someone else who's just got the cheaper deal or whatever. The mistake would be thinking it's a set and forget. It's yes, definitely right. not that. Mm. You know, you actually need to ramp up your customer service even more, come out with all of those little special things, the incentives, because you are still creating and developing and maintaining a relationship. You're doing it digitally. I think you have to work harder when you're doing it digitally. Yeah. 
Mm. Um, the prediction is that the office-less workforce could become a reality. Is this viable for regional businesses, do you think? And what does it mean for connection and, and mental health, let alone, uh, let alone business health? Look, I, I think that, you know, um, the universities have had to deal with offices, officeless staff for, for the last three years, particularly in Lismore. And I, I think that there were some really great things that we learnt out of that. And I think that, you know, some people work really, really well in that situation. Um, but that, um, you know, what I found with my team is that they do miss um, the, mm. the culture, they miss the contact and and we've kind of devised a kind of blended mode of work and i suspect that that blended mode of work where where it's sustainable will be the way of the future that people will come in a couple of days a week but they'll also have um space in their off uh, at their home for an office yeah that hybrid model seems to be really taking off i think there's a real difference between the attitudes of the city metro areas and regional areas um, in, me- in Metro, in Sydney, I know they really want to get everyone back into the office because they've seen a huge decline in business in the, in, in the city, in the CBD mm. itself, whereas I think regional areas have been the beneficiary of it, um, where a lot of our smaller towns and villages, we've seen the you know, cafes sprouting up and the like because more people are working from home. And certainly in, in um, the suburban areas of Sydney, they're fighting back a little bit because they like having more people around and who are dropping in out of their home office. Mm. Um, so the hybrid model, I think, will work. And one of the challenges we have in our region is employment lands and the capacity mm. to grow. Um, and particularly, you know, we're not probably keeping up with what the demand is and what is needed for the future. And in that case, then uh, it's a solution for business and industry when their employees can do that working from home um, when they don't actually have the space to grow yet. And obviously that really only works for those that are in um, office-based positions. And, uh, you know, we've still got a huge amount of industry that require people to be turning up every day and, and being on site wherever that is and whatever they're making or producing. Um, but young people actually want the flexibility and if we're trying to attract that future workforce then we actually, as employers we sort of do need to adapt a little bit to what they're asking for um, but what they're also saying is they like opportunities to connect so then it comes back to the um, businesses having places and spaces that people are really drawn to and that they want to come into, that they see the benefits of coming together with like minds and you know, brainstorming and coming up with those ideas and being really creative. So we need to turn it on our head on, on its head and make sure that we're creating spaces that people want to come to. Mm-hmm. And um, our final megatrend is unlocking the human dimension, an area into which we've already ventured. Um, Pam... Um, uh, this megatrend recognises that people, all of us, increasingly demand transparency from business, uh, from government, in order to maintain trust. How do you see that manifesting for businesses in the Northern Rivers? I think um, in the Northern Rivers there's the, there's the customer experience and then there's the internal work experience. And building culture and people within business and bringing people on board with transparency within business is really important. Networks and connectedness, um, the the way that they work together, whether they're working, f- you know, only part-time in the office and part-time at home, that connectedness is really important. They need to be feel that they're part of something special. Likewise, the customer needs to trust in the products and service will be key um, and always is key. Uh, 
so that there's transparency in their transactions with uh, with the business and also there's transparency within the business as to how people are doing and how they're going and where their pathway is. So um, I think that's really important, trust is. Trust is everything, whether it's trust and you're in a digital space or whether it's trust and you're in an office space or whether it's trust with uh, a purchase or a, or a transaction. And um, then relationships always rule. Relationships will get you over hurdles. They'll get you over supply chain hurdles. They'll get you over uh, geopolitical hurdles, often an export hurdle. So relationships still continue to be everything. So network, network, network. Um, We are not a population that's meant to be alone. We're meant to – we work best when we work with people well. So no matter what happens, we need to build those connections with those around us. Mm. There's a definite trend, isn't there, towards reinstating the value of Indigenous knowledge um, in Australia and especially in this region. Is it, do you think, an opportunity for deeper engagement with and understanding of, uh, of Aboriginal culture and ways of doing things? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that... Um, you know, we, we're looking at, um, you know, trends going forward, but I, I think that also going back to to what um, Indigenous people know about the land, the, 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 the agriculture that they, they use, the, um, the medicines, medicines and, and products that they, they used um, is, is going to be critical to um, us in Australia um, going forward, coping with climate change, thinking about the different sort of grains or food products that we might use, thinking about how we restore the land. And um, Indigenous people have got a, a lot to, to tell us and, and we, we, sh- we are very privileged that um, they're, they're willing to share that knowledge with us. Absolutely. Isn't that thinking about terms so important? Because the one thing that Indigenous people is so important is time, reflection, consideration and that sometimes we as people tend to rush and just got to do this, got to do that. But um, over 60,000 years, they've, they've all the, the considerations are on time, the whole cool burning concept of looking and observing uh, time and reflection and considering what's around you is so important and sometimes we just need to make time. Yes to really think about things well. And I think we've got a really great opportunity with the, the referendum, you know, to, oh. to, um, to show our appreciation to Indigenous Australians. Mm. And I think we need to hear that voice mm. too. Mm. Yeah. yeah, the opportunity for that deeper engagement is not something we should overlook. Um, and we're really blessed in this region. We've got some very generous elders who connect and participate and, and want to help us learn and, and really enrich our relationship. Um, with the with the Northern Rivers land, and uh, if anyone has an opportunity to do that, they should embrace it um, full heartedly, um, because you'll never be the same again. Every time you learn something, and I think that's the thing. There's such richness and opportunity there. We we need to, yeah, we need to embrace it. Nice, very nicely put. And so, uh, Jane, Mary, Pam, let's cast our minds forward now. Um, we've all reached the year 2042. Well, I'll be dead. I don't know about you. <laughs> We've seen the mega trends ebb and flow, and we're gathering again to record episode number 756 of Business Bites. What are your thoughts on that reality? Are you all excited? Are you uh, filled with trepidation? Are you enthusiastic? Pam? 
well, I'm pretty excited that I'm alive in 2042 <laughs> <laughs> for a start. And I'm hoping that aged care has made significant advances <laughs> so that it encompasses the way that the people are ageing now. Um, grow old disgracefully is something that I'm always keen on. But I hope we haven't left it to the grandchildren to solve. I hope that there's been really steady progress on climate change and really preserving the planet in those years between now and 2042. Um, because then in 2042, I will be happy if that's the case. Jane? Someone just told me recently that the period of time between now um, and going back to 1918 uh, is the same... Sorry, it's the same period of time from 19... Sorry, from 1971. I'll get this right. So they just told me that from 1970 going back to 1918 is the same period of time as 1970 to today. So I was born in 1971 and that kind of freaked me out a little oh. bit. But I'm, I feel like right now as a young 51-year-old and um, in a position, I guess, of leadership with business and industry in our region... I and those around me have a huge responsibility because the things we do today will make a difference to our young people for 2040, 2050. And so what we do today is so important and we need to be thinking about more than ourselves. We do need to be thinking further ahead um, because I don't want to be in 2040 and the young people say to me, why didn't you do this 20 years ago? You had the opportunity to drive change and set the, the foundations right for us. So I take that responsibility you know, really strongly and, and I want to make sure that we're doing everything possible to um, give everyone a good future. Mm -hmm. And Mary? I'm a historian, so I always struggle with questions about the future. <laughs> but I, I would go back to what you were saying earlier about time, about, you know, we always, you know, Mod as modern people, we always want to see things go really fast. But actually, what I want to see now is actually us reflecting, thinking about what we've done right, but also what we've done wrong, looking to different models of, of change and development um, and, and, and hoping that, you know, like both of you, that, you know, that we, we make good decisions and that we do not leave, um, you know, the next generation to clean up the god-awful mess. And so we started this episode with a quote from Our Future World and we're going to end with another. This one from Yoda, Star Wars <laughs> resident Jedi master. Difficult to see, always in motion is the future. My time-travelling panellists, thank you very, very much for joining us on Business Bites. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. This episode of Business Bites explored the CSIRO's recently released Our Future World report, which outlines the seven global megatrends expected to emerge over the next 20 years. Joining me to discuss what the trends could mean for businesses in the Northern Rivers was Professor Mary Spongberg, she's Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Southern Cross University, Jane Laverty, she's Regional Director of Business New South Wales, and Pam Brook, author, regen farmer and food manufacturer. Together we travelled through time and the future seems exciting as a result. This podcast series is a collaboration between Southern Cross University and Northern Rivers Food and it's proudly funded by the New South Wales Government. I hope you'll join us for the next Business Bite. I'm Angela Caterns. Thanks for listening.